continuing our series in the book of Acts. So if you'd open your copy of the scriptures to Acts chapter 21, verses 1 through 16. And please give your attention to God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word that is authoritative for our lives. And when we had parted from, from them and set sail, we came by straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey. And they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemus, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, Let the will of the Lord be done. After these days we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. Some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing uh, us to the house of Manson of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. Let's pray. Father, as we now have opened your word and have read it, and I seek to proclaim it um, in accordance with uh, the truthfulness of your word, I pray that you would be our teacher and apply your word to our hearts and help us to be more faithful in following our Lord Jesus so that we would be like the Apostle Paul and say, may the will of the Lord be done wherever he should lead us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I need your help this morning in investigating this passage of Scripture for a few moments. I want you to wrestle with the question that I had to answer before I could understand what was happening here in this passage. See, there's this dispute that's going on between the Apostle Paul and the believers. And it was not really easy to make sense of this. And so I want you to wrestle with me. Um at this dispute that Paul was having with the believers. Look at verse 4 to begin. 
this is when Paul comes, uh, had landed at Tyre, and he stayed there with the believers for about a week. It says, Having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. So they're telling him, don't go. And then Paul ignores them. And he continues on his way to Jerusalem. He comes to Caesarea. And look what happens in verses 11 and 12. Verse 11, And coming, coming to us, uh, this is Agabus who had come down from Judea. And Agabus was a prophet. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go to Jerusalem. So, reading these passages, it seems clear that the Holy Spirit is warning Paul what's going to happen to him when he comes to Jerusalem. The implication being, if you go, this is going to happen. Um, That he's going to be mistreated and arrested. And even the urgency of these warnings suggests that he might even die in Jerusalem. Well, if this is the case, then why is Paul insisting that he go anyway? Look at verse 13. Paul then answered, What are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Look back with me. Uh, actually, let me let me let me pause here. What is happening? Paul has set his mind to going to Jerusalem, and he will not be dissuaded. Is it just because he is he set his mind, and he is a stubborn male, and he is not going to change his mind? Ladies, do you know anybody like that? Actually, I believe that Paul is following God's will in his insistence in going to Jerusalem. Look back one chapter, Acts chapter 20, verses 22 through 24. And listen to the Apostle Paul, and he says, And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit it has here in the English Standard Version, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me that in every city... Uh, that imprisonment and afflictions await me, that I do not account my life as of any value nor precious to myself, if I may only finish my course and the ministry I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. This word here, constrained in verse 22, literally in the Greek is, is the word bound. The, the Holy Spirit has bound the Apostle Paul to go to Jerusalem. Um, So Paul is bound, he's constrained, he's compelled to go to to Jerusalem and suffer whatever happens. And God had told him, well here's what's going to happen. You're going to be mistreated, you're going to be imprisoned, and you are going to suffer greatly. So then what's happening in verse in chapter 21 with this dispute between the believers and the Apostle Paul? Why are the believers telling Paul not to go? And why does the Holy Spirit seem to be egging them on? 
the believers are hearing these prophecies about what's going to happen to Paul and then they are inserting their wills in their advice to Paul. In other words, the Holy Spirit's not telling Paul, don't go. He's saying to Paul, and he's also warning the believers, here's what's going to happen when Paul goes. Don't be alarmed, I think, is what the Holy Spirit's uh, purpose is um, in, in, in giving these prophecies. But the believers are saying, this is going to happen, so don't go. Look again at uh, verses 11 and 12. When Agabus gives this prophecy, notice that he doesn't in this prophecy then add on, don't go. He says, coming to us, he took Paul's belt, bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. So there's no, no word here from God, no word from, from Agabus as he is speaking in the Spirit, telling Paul not to go. Rather, verse 12, when we heard this, we and the people, we being Luke plus everyone who gathered around, when we heard this, um, sorry, I was looking at the wrong verse. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go. So it's the believers who are telling him not to go. God never says, don't go. And the believers end up coming around uh, because you see in verse 14, uh, since he, since Paul would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. So they came around to, to Paul's position, okay? Let God's will be done. But this raises the question, however, of why Paul must go to Jerusalem. Why does he need to go? Or does he need to go? And the answer to that question is a resounding yes. Paul indeed needed to go. It was necessary that he go to Jerusalem. Do you remember what Paul's been doing on this, his third missionary journey? We made a big deal of this a few weeks ago. He was going all over Asia Minor and then over into uh, southeast Europe. And everywhere he, he went, he went to the churches and he asked something from them. Remember what that was? He asked them to be generous in donating uh, financial gifts to the church in Jerusalem. So he's going through and he's collecting uh, these, these collections of monies. And... and um, He's going to then take this financial gift back to the impoverished church in Jerusalem. The church in Jerusalem, of course, is made up of mostly who? Of Jews who have been converted to Jesus Christ. These churches that he's visiting through Asia Minor and, and Southeast Europe are made up of who? Mainly Gentiles. Remember when we were looking at Acts chapter 10 through 15? when Cornelius came to faith in Christ in Acts chapter 10. And then for the next um, four or five chapters, it's almost as if the church is going to split so that they had to have the first Presbyterian meeting, Acts chapter 15, to have a meeting of the minds. Okay, how are we going to view these Gentiles? And there were undoubtedly Jewish Christians in Jerusalem who were still viewing this offshoot Christian 
church, this Gentile church, these Gentile believers, they were probably they were viewing them with some suspicion. Um, so Paul here going and receiving this collection and bringing this collection back to the impoverished church in Jerusalem uh, that was so badly needed, uh, this would promote unity between the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians. And Paul knew that it was God's will for him to deliver these contributions and that the unity of the Jews and Gentiles thereby be promoted. And this was his unyielding commitment. He was willing to be mistreated. He was willing to be arrested. He was willing even to be killed to do God's will. Now, in saying this, typically, if you think something is God's will and the whole church is telling you it's a bad idea, typically I would say you need to listen to the advice of the brethren. Um, However, there are going to be those times where God says, you go here and you obey God regardless of what everybody else is telling you. What if, since we just sang uh, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, what if Martin Luther had listened to the advice that people were undoubtedly giving of, you know, just play along with what's going on. You know, Martin Luther, back in 1517, he was standing basically all by himself in front of the whole Catholic Church. And he said, here I stand... I can do no other. God help me. Amen. Aren't we thankful that Martin Luther was uh, willing and able to do God's will, stand against all advisors, and take his stand on the sure and certain word of God, regardless of the threats that were made against him. So typically I would say, listen to the brothers, but there might be those times where you have to obey God's will. What we learn here in this passage are many things about how to follow God's will. The first thing we learn here in this passage is that it is going to be typically very difficult to follow God's will. Following God's will will always be costly. Listen to what Jesus says in Luke chapter 9, verses 23 through 26. He says, He said to all, not to some super Christians, He's speaking to everybody, He says to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits his own soul? Oh, I'm sorry. Verse 26, I almost overlooked it. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Or listen again. That, that's, that's in Luke 9. Listen to, to Luke chapter 14, verses 25 through 27 and also verse 33. Now great crowds accompanied Jesus and he turned to them and said... If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, his wife and children, and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot, let me say that again, he cannot 
be my disciple. Whoever therefore does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. So therefore any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the great uh, German pastor who was um, alive during World War II, um, he said this in his book, The Cost of Discipleship. When Jesus calls a man, he bids him come and die. Many of you, I would assume, know a little bit about Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Uh, you know that he spoke up, spoke out against Hitler. He was thrown in jail and was eventually killed because he was willing to speak out against Hitler because of his faith in Jesus Christ. The cost of discipleship means that you must be willing to follow Jesus Christ wherever he leads and even give up your life. Anything less, Jesus says, you are unworthy to be his disciple. It's hard for us to wrap our minds around this concept. Because here in America, we have freedom to worship. Here in America, we have affluence. And we have these modern conveniences that are able to help us out of any, any uh, tight situation that we might find ourselves in. Furthermore, here in America, we have this mistaken theology that says that if you are doing God's will, that all trouble will cease. And that when God calls us to do something, we can expect that everything will just go along smoothly. Actually, the Bible teaches us that the exact opposite is the case. Biblically, we must expect opposition This opposition may come from circumstances. This opposition may come from other people, even believers, like Paul is receiving opposition from other believers. And we even receive opposition from within our own souls. Because doing God's will is costly. Now you might be thinking that Paul had an advantage here that we don't have when it comes to following God's will because he got direct revelation from God. You know, God opens up the heavens and and speaks to you audibly. This is what you are to do. Well, then that would be a little easier to do it. Um, And God had told him directly what his will was. And Paul also had these prophets all around him. He went to Philip's house. Philip, um, in verse 9, had four daughters. Uh, He was a blessed man, uh, but I bet he had gray hair. Um, And these four daughters prophesied. So verse 9, he had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. Um, And then there was Agabus, in verses 10 and 11. We've already read what he had to say. And how he bound himself with Paul's belt. You know, if we had that, like I said, we would think it would be easier to follow God's will if we had prophets in the church today. But why don't we have prophets in the church today? I agree with the Westminster Confession of Faith when it says that Scripture is most necessary, those former ways of revealing God's will unto his people being now ceased. 
In other words, God is not giving us new, uh, inspired, and inerrant information in this era. The prophets were needed while God's Word was being written. Uh, But once it was completed, here in the pages of this book, we have everything we need for life and for godliness. And so, um, so God does not have that need of prophets because we have the Scriptures. Um, but God does um, use His Word in our lives and He gives us understanding within the context of our circumstances. Uh, one of the former churches that I served in, and I'll try and be brief... Uh, the church was going through really difficult circumstances. In fact, some of the elders were talking about Ichabod being written above the door, if you're familiar with the passage uh, you know, in Judges, where the um, where uh, they had the baby, named the baby Ichabod, and saying that uh, the glory had departed from, from Israel. And that's what it felt like in the church. The glory had departed from the church. And it was, um, it was a difficult time. And I was an associate pastor, so I wasn't as responsible for the flock as the senior pastor. But I was feeling the responsibility on my shoulders. And what I would do is I'd go out and I would walk around the property. And I would just walk around and around the property and I would read the scriptures. I remember reading the whole book of Mark in one sitting. And I would read these, uh, like Colossians, since it's four chapters. I would read it like three or four times through. And I would be praying as I read. And this was just my daily routine, spending an hour, sometimes two, outside just praying to God. And um, once I was reading from Philippians, I can't even remember what verse it was. But as I'm reading, it was all of a sudden, it's like God used that that passage to teach me a a principle from His Word. And it was like the, the curtain of what was happening in our church was just pulled back and I was able to see more clearly than I could have ever imagined what was happening. And it was so bad that we had 17 elders who were ordained, 17 ruling elders, and only one of them was willing to serve. So things were really bad in the church. And uh, as I read this, I began praying. And, uh, and, and I realized what needed to be done. But I knew it would not be popular. And I thought, I'm going to lose my job. And it was, I was certain I was going to lose my job. But I knew it was God's will. And, um, and I ended up going against everything in my soul. Everything, if I had asked people about what I was going to do, uh, it would have gone against every bit of advice. And I pressed forward. And uh, God blessed it. And I was not in any way unrighteous or, or in disobedience to the, uh, to the senior pastor or to the elders. Uh, it, just, it just suddenly made sense when I thought my career was old, over, basically. Um, and uh, it, was, it was a year-long process. I remember my wife saying to me, Welcome back, after everything had had uh, kind of cleared and, 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 and things had turned around. And that's, that's just a little, that story I want to 
use as an illustration of what it might mean to follow God's will and to know what it means to follow God's will. I, I could have been completely wrong. But I knew. My call, call to the ministry. God never opened the heavens and said, Wesley, be a pastor. Um, but I know in my heart that God has called me to do so. So what does it mean to follow God's will? It means that you love Jesus so much, love His people so much, love His kingdom so much, that you are willing to suffer for Him. Look at the Apostle Paul in verse 13. Then Paul answered, What are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? For I am willing, or I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. That's what it means to follow God's will. So let me ask you as I uh, bring this to a conclusion. Is it your desire to follow God's will? Have you counted the cost in your own life and said, Yes, I am willing to follow God wherever He leads. Now what that might mean for you, I don't know. But I do know that it will start, that it must start with with your willingness to say, Yes, wherever He leads, I will go. Otherwise, you're not worthy, Jesus says, to be His disciple. Our Lord Jesus did something for us. Paul's willingness to do God's will reflects back to our Lord Jesus when he was in the garden. And he said, not my will, but your will be done. And the strain was such that he was, that I guess they say the capillaries um, had burst and he was, he was literally bleeding from the side of his face. The strain was so great. And yet he was willing to do what God said. What did God say? What, what was it God's will that Jesus do? To freely go to that cross. To suffer at the hands of wicked men. To have himself stretched out on that cross. Have his hands and his feet pierced. Have his head pierced. Have his side pierced. In order that he might become sin for sinners. That he might die in the place of sinners. For Jesus, who from all eternity has never known sin, for him to become sin for sinners, whatever suffering God calls us to, he'll never match that kind of suffering. But in his death on the cross... He purchased for us not only forgiveness of sins, but He purchased for us the power and the ability by His Spirit to follow Him wherever He goes, wherever He says that we should go. Do you trust Him? That's the question this morning. Do you trust the Lord Jesus Christ enough to say, Yes, into your hands I place my life. Into your hands I place my family. Into your hands I place my future. Into your hands I place my present. It's about trusting in Him. And when you trust Him, you taste Him. And you find that He tastes very good. And I'm speaking symbolically, of course, here. 
and you're willing to go wherever he says. Let's pray together. Almighty God, we thank you for our Lord Jesus that he was willing to go where you sent him. Because in his going to the cross, he purchased us for God. And now as we read in the the opening, the, the call to worship, we now have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We now have access to fellowship with you. We now have your Holy Spirit living in us. Because he trusted God, died on the cross, and gloriously rose for our justification. Father, it is my prayer that everyone here this morning would say, Yes, Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go, wherever you tell me to go. And I will entrust myself, all that I am, all that I have, all that I could ever hope to be, into your hands. Use me for your glory and honor. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.